I don't think I've ever done a Facebook Live. You hear a voice. It's not mine. <laughs> Inappropriate Earl is back. Thank you last week to the double combo of Amir Talai from LA to Vegas, a show that was canceled too soon, in my opinion, and the great Canadian import, Ian Bag. We, we did a two for Tuesday last week. Today's Monday, and it's one person this week. He's a repeat guest. He's got a new comedy album coming out. We're going to talk all about it. You're going to recognize that soothing sexual voice from many things. He's hosted many TV shows. Chelsea lately, one of the most popular panelists. Sorry, Chris Frangiola. I'll see you Wednesday in Phoenix. Put your, put your hands together for one of the good ones in this business. <laughs> the sharpest dressed comic in the business, Mr. Ryan Stout. Oh, thank you, everybody. That's a lovely intro. I like, I like that from last time, too. I like how you will stand to give the intro. It's respect. It's respect, but you're also like, I like to be on my feet. I like to have that energy while we're starting off the pod. Well, I pulled my back out yesterday boxing, so I have to stand a little bit. Okay. Uh, getting old, man. Yeah. My, uh, my older brother, he, he went to Caltech, so he's a software nerd. And, uh, the reason he applied was because he wanted to play basketball. And he was like, the only way I'm going to be able to play college basketball is if I go to a school <laughs> where the level of athlete is very low. And now he comes to town every year, every January and plays in his alumni basketball game. And at this point, he's 47. And so every year he's like, all right, the goal is just not to get hurt. Just don't get hurt. Just go in, run up and down the court a few times, pass the ball, make a few shots. Just don't get hurt. Well, I mean, I just turned 50. So, uh, you know, I play in this hockey league on Sundays and I used to want to win every game. I still do uh, want to be the leading scorer every season. But now it's like, I don't want to get hurt. Uh -huh. It's my soul. It's my number one goal is, you know, if I can't go into the recording booth for the cartoon, I'll get fired. Uh -huh. I don't want to get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So, you have other priorities. Other things once. came up in life. That's, I think that's called personal growth. <laughs> well, I spent so long with no success in comedy that I was like, oh, I can get hurt. And it's no problem. I mean, I didn't want to get hurt, but sure. like, sure. You know, it didn't really affect me if I had to lay in bed for a few days. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of comics think that way early on in their careers, too, where they think, I can I can sleep in my car. I can take this gig that only pays $70. I can eat just a few cans of tuna per day. I can do it. I can put myself through this suffering. And oftentimes they do it in the hopes of propelling their careers. And a lot of times it works out and a lot of times it doesn't. And when it doesn't, you kind of go, oof. Oh, yeah. I mean, I used to do triple runs and go, oh, this is great. Yeah. Now, for those of you not knowing what triple runs are, they're horrific gigs, hundreds, thousands of miles of driving. Yeah. Uh, Pacific you know, Northwest. Uh, bar shows, pretty much. Uh, those That kind of living, you're, you're almost like a shark. I, I tell this to people all the time that you're doing a bar show. You're hoping to make 200 bucks off the show and then make a few hundred dollars in merchandise, make $50 in merchandise, just so you have enough gas so that you can make it to the next gig the next night to make another $200 and maybe $50 in gas. And a lot of times there aren't 
always hotels or there are breaks between gigs because they only do like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then you've got four days where you're like, all right, I need someplace to stay, I guess. I guess I should tap into this little sum of money to get a hotel. And if you stop moving, you die. Well, I just uh, assumed like on these triple runs that the off days, your hotel would be paid for. Yeah. And I found that out real fast on the first one I did. They aren't. And Uh his logic was completely insane of like, well, dude, what you do is you go to the hotel we have you booked at and you just hang out in the lobby the day before. I'm like, what are you hang out in the lobby for 24 hours? Yeah. And, uh, or you go to a strip club and hang out there. And then it's like, uh, I don't want to do this. Where do I sleep? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, but that was, you know, you live and learn. And uh-huh. I mean, I don't see you. Did you ever do triple runs? Uh, strangely enough, when they were kind of presented to me in my early days of comedy, I was too young to go. Because I wasn't 21 yet, and a lot of them were in bars. Right. And so I would try to get booked for things, and I was told too young many, many times. And so I was forced to kind of just stay in San Francisco and work around town where I could. And then as I kind of moved up the ladder, I looked at things like Tribble and his gigs, and I was like, yeah, we don't have to do this. I'm not going to do that now. When I would have done it, you wouldn't let me. So now, now I'm good. Well, in theory, you think, oh wow, there's, it's 125 bucks for a feature for some leatherneck or headliner, and you know that's a lot of money. But then you start the eight-hour drive, and you start to kind of piece it together of, oh, yeah, 75 bucks in gas. Uh huh. Oh, and Earl, can you pick up the headliner? He lives in Utah. <laughs> Oh, but the first gig's in Oregon. It's not really... uh, It's not along the way at all. I mean, I don't miss those days, but I do uh, look back at them somewhat fondly. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for um, just the amount of suffering that happens early on in stand-up, where we almost resent the people who didn't suffer. Oh, yeah. You know, there's there's there are people in stand up who because they had a viral video, they never had to like break into a comedy club and like prove their worth. Instead, they had a viral video. So they put asses in seats. So, hey, guess what? You're the headliner. And so they never understood any level of like rejection from comedy clubs or bookers where the rest of us are like, oh, I had to fight my way in with that club. And then the booker died. (laughs) <laughs> right and so it was years of my life just wasted yeah i mean i knew at the comedy store there was probably five people who were set to be passed by tommy yeah the, the old talent coordinator and then he got fired for his uh, <clears throat> interesting accounting methods uh-huh and uh so those five people were like you know kind of bummed out and i felt bad for him yeah uh and you know it's just i mean i think now you see it a lot with like jeremy pevin doing stand-up like and not, nothing against him. I don't know him. Uh, sure. But he's been walked into headlining every club he plays. And Yeah. And it's it's this disconnect between somebody who calls themselves a talent booker and we look at them and go, oh, you're just a popularity booker. <laughs> Which <laughs> I get. It makes sense. But don't call yourself a talent booker when really what you're doing is you're booking somebody based on the amount of tickets they sell. That's a different set of accounting. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I, I mean, in some ways, I understand it. You know, if someone has a popular podcast, they're going to sell out the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone's famous from another field, you know, like the MMA fighter, Brendan Schaub, is uh, 
He's killing it right now. Yeah, he sells a lot of tickets. Uh, and I get it. And I hear he's a dude that works real hard and and is trying to get better and better and better at what he does on stage. And anybody who does that, anybody who puts the work in, you go, hey, look, you're you're suffering just as much as anybody because this work is difficult. Yo, I don't uh, mind when they put the work in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, I remember years ago, years ago, when Steve-O was going to get up on stage at the Hollywood Improv. and. I remember kind of a, a level of humility and just a vibe that he gave off where he walked in and he was like, yeah, I'm just going to do five minutes because he understood like this is serious and uh, I have to go up and be prepared. <laughs> and you know what? He got on stage and he told a bit and he did another bit and he did another bit and he had a call back at the end. And then he said, good night. And as he was doing his work up there, I was like, oh, he put a lot of forethought into this he's actually trying up there he's not just taking the stage grabbing the mic and saying let's see what happens he actually thought about what he wanted to do he tried to make it happen and then he said good night like a gentleman and walked off the stage some people they just get up there and they go i'm gonna i'm gonna figure this out right here and now yeah that gets me going a little bit yeah well especially when they're famous enough when nobody's gonna kick them off the mic Oh, yeah. I mean, like, uh, I was in the back of the comedy store one night, and Jeremy Piven, I think he saw me as someone who people look up to just because people were talking to me. And so he's like, hey, man, uh, I think I got this. And I'm just going, I mean, dude, I love Jin Heat, but you don't have this. (laughs) I'm sure he's a nice guy. And, you know, it's just puzzling to me that... (laughs) You know, stand-up seems to be the last stop for people who are having difficulty in their, you know, like he had some allegations and whatnot. And, you know, Michael Rappaport's another guy who seems to have gone off the rails. Mm. And I'll just do stand-up now. Yeah, it seems to be the first stop or the last stop on somebody's trajectory. Because once they have some success in it and then they can get away from it, they are quick to get away from it. <laughs> they go, oh, that was hard. I'm not going back to that. It hardly pays anything compared to, you know, doing this television show or doing this movie or just consulting on whatever I might be producing, whatever that may mean. It's just a title with a name on it. And it comes with a check that's huge. But when they get on stage to do stand up, they go, oh, this is a lot of work and it's all on me. And there's nobody who's going to fix the lighting to make me look better. There's nobody who's going to fix the sound. There's nobody who's going to say, cut, we need the audience to laugh more. So if everybody could give more energy for the actor on stage, it's not going to happen. You actually have to deliver. And once people realize that, they go, ugh, I want to stop doing stand-up as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, uh, John Mayer, uh, I, I see he's dabbling in stand-up. He, yeah, he's done. He's That's kind of the problem with him, too. That's a guy who understands the effort that it takes to pick up a guitar and practice and practice for years on end to get good at it. But then with stand-up, does he get on stage and practice with diligence? He does not. He comes, he does a little, he leaves. He shows up a few months later, he does a little, he leaves. And you go, buddy, this is just as hard as your guitar playing. Maybe harder. Maybe harder. Because there is a definitive response we're going for. Well, it's like you said, uh... You know, stand up, you're up there alone, unless you're in a duo act. Yeah. Uh, so. But know. even then, even as a duo act, you are outnumbered by the audience and they're going to let you know. And even like with John Mayer, if he's in a band, 
you know, and the drummer's off or the bass player's off or the keyboard player's off, he can look over and blame them. Of course. But, you know, you, me, John Mayer, whoever, <laughs> Jeremy Piven, yeah. uh, Screech, uh, there ain't no one to blame up there. You got to take it. You got to take your licks. Uh, and I find most of those guys and girls, you know, there's a few females who kind of just, oh, I'll do this now. Oh, yeah. I can get up there. Yeah, and I think what a lot of people are missing is this concept of, um, you know, when he says, I think I've got this, I would look at him and go, got what? What do you mean got got this? Because I write new jokes all the time and I look at the new joke and I go, I wonder if an audience will laugh at this. Let's go on stage and just find out. And even when the audience laughs, I go, all right. Well, we have to get on stage tomorrow to see if that audience will laugh. Right. And we got to do this testing process in a lot of different places just to make sure that I can rely on this joke. There's no, I've got this until you're already done. You release an album and you go, hey, uh, for all these jokes, yeah, I got this. <laughs> but even then, you don't know if you have it. Like, you have a new album out. What's it called? It's called Man in the Suit. It's, th it's your third album. It's my third album. It's a nice milestone for me. Uh, I mean, I can barely string together a 10 minute set. I, I don't know how you've done three albums. Uh, it's, it's just taking a lot of time and effort. Yeah. And, and do you think you have this? Well, it not as far as album four goes, I don't have a thing, <laughs> but as far as all the jokes that are on the third album, that's for you, by the way. Oh, thank uh, you. I just want the, uh, and where can people get this? It's on iTunes. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere where you get sounds. It's on, I'm sure SoundCloud someplace. I know it's on Spotify and Pandora and Tidal. You guys use Tidal? It's on there. Uh, but as far as those jokes go, as far as any stand-up comedy album or special, the whole idea is, oh, I've already tested these jokes and I've done them all over the country, sometimes in different parts of the world. And these are the jokes that work most consistently. So you know what? I'm going to put them down on record and now I'm done with them. Those are over. I had those. So will you do uh, jokes from the third album, say, uh, two weeks from now? On the third album, I might. I might be on stage. I might get into a place where the new material is not working. And I go, ah, I have to dig out of this hole a little bit. So what can I do at this point to just kind of give my act a little boost? And, you know, not necessarily everybody's heard all those jokes. There, there are comics that argue, listen, if people aren't mouthing the words with you, they don't know the joke. Right. So do it again. Just keep doing the jokes. But as far as what I was saying about curiosity goes, that's not that's not me doing the job of being a comic anymore in my mind, because I'm like, those jokes are done. I know those jokes work. So I'm not learning anything when I do those jokes. That's why I retired them. Uh, so when people look at my first album, I go, yeah, those those I, I had it. I had those. Those those are mine. And they're done. Uh, second album. Those jokes work. No matter what you think of them, if you like them, if you dislike them, you can never deny the fact that they worked. And then we let them go. And how long does it take you to come up with, uh, like, what's the, because I know a lot of comics listen to this uh, show and uh, they struggle with putting a, an album together. What's the process from day one to today? So I think day one for album four, that's, you know, I uh, ostensibly being worked on now is I look at any jokes that I have that I really, really like that have never been on an album before. And I go, all right, is this a good starting place 
for album four. And I look at some premises that I've been working on that weren't prepared for album three and that work stays in process. You know, it's, it's not like starting from ground, the uh, ground zero all over again. You've, you've got some material in the chamber and you just kind of go, all right, we're going to start placing it and we're going to figure out a beginning, a middle and an end. And we're going to get on stage and we're going to try to be courageous and we're going to try to do the new jokes, even though the new jokes might bomb and you, you have to feel your way through for a long time. And that time period gets longer depending on the amount of stage time you get. Cause if you're only getting on stage a few times a week, you know, twice a week, you're going to have a hard time learning your lessons. Right. But if you're getting on stage five, 10 times a week, oh, much better. I'm amazed when I go on the road, especially at a comedy club like Go Bananas in Cincinnati, where they're letting me do an hour on stage. And then on some shows, they're like, oh, if you do more than that, that's fine. Do you want us to cut down the other acts so that you can have more time on stage? And those weeks where I really have time to work stuff out, I try so much. I get so much done on stage. And uh, my confidence level spikes Whereas I come back to LA and I go to one of the local clubs and they go, great. So you're going to do 12, you're going to do seven. And I go, okay, well, I got to pull out some hits to get the audience on my side Sure. because I'm following, you know, whether it be Chris D'Elia or Whitney Cummings or whoever's on stage crushing, I go, all right, well, I have to somehow ride the wave of their energy and get the crowd on my side and try something new. And then I have to say goodnight somehow. So that's a lot less time to get stuff done. And so you 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 make your choices when you can. Yeah, but I mean they're just so much harder. There's no uh, place that I know of where you can do longer than 15 minutes in LA. So and there's no real need for it in this town because if there's one thing that I've learned over the years, it's nobody on the business end really cares if you can do an hour. It doesn't do them any good. They would much rather you have seven solid minutes that they can show to somebody who's in casting who can say, Oh, let's let them act on this project. Right. Cause acting on a sitcom is going to pay way more in a shorter period of time than trying to book yourself around the world and get on stage, all these places and the time it takes to fly there and do the show and fly back. And all of the people who are in Hollywood exist for money. They're only mm. trying to do money grabs. And they're like, why would it, why would we take all of this time and invest this time into a comedian when all they're going to be doing is touring around, making little bits of cash? It's not worth it to us. They're, they're very dismissive of the whole concept of stand up because for, for their perspective, there's no money in it. Oh yeah. I mean, I would say the last few meetings I've taken with managers or whatever, they're like, well, what it, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, I just love doing stand up. Like yeah. that's my love. That's in my mind, what I'm best at. And I could just tell their hearts drop when I say that. that you could tell they're looking at me going, dude, there's no money in stand-up. Yeah. Well, and and worst of all, they their hearts are dropping because they're like, well, we're not going to be able to talk you out of that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, even worse, we don't know what to do for you, which is really their answer because they're like, we, we have no tools to help somebody with their stand-up. And they really don't because even the best managers and agents in town, all they can do is call a comedy club in the Midwest and say, hey, we've got this 
comic. They're amazing. Put them on. And the club owner is going to go, well, do they sell tickets? Yeah. If they don't sell tickets, I don't want them. And then we're back to square one again. <laughs> like there's, there's no, there's no system in place for growth as a standup. So I mean, you I just see, have to do it on your own. Yeah, which has never been easier in some ways. In some ways, it's never been easier. You're but right. that also makes it worse for, like anyone can do a podcast. Right. Anyone. I mean, literally, an open micer can buy an H4N recorder with two mics, and they can be on Joe Rogan's, uh, not level, but like, he has a podcast, now they have a podcast. Yeah, like and if, it, if people listen to the open micer more than they listen to Joe, well, that's just, that's the way it is. It's, <laughs> you know? it's not likely. Nope, but it's possible. But, uh, you know, it, and same thing with comedy. You could film your own set, put it on YouTube, and, and I know some people are even putting specials on YouTube. They're not even getting paid. Completely, just, right. I want a special on YouTube. Well, here's an hour of me bombing. Yeah. Or maybe doing well. Who knows? And it's weird how that stuff, you would think that it wouldn't, you would think that it would hurt you more than help you because basically people are just taking your work for free. But in some ways, like I have a half hour set that's up on YouTube. Until I put that up, I was just putting up three minute little jokes. And uh, I put this half hour set up and I just went, well, that's just up there now. And people are so bored in our world right now <laughs> that they go, yeah, I'd much rather just sit here and consume the half hour set than click through three short videos. Right. And you go, but the three short videos are eight or nine minutes. You'd rather invest 30 minutes than eight or nine. And they go, yeah. <laughs> and for some reason that gets more views and then more people like reach out to me to say, Hey, I watched that 30 minute set. Really liked it. Okay, guys, just we're in this consumer culture where they, they say we can either watch a three minute, <laughs> we can either watch this three minute thing on Facebook, or we can binge watch an entire series on Netflix. Let's binge watch the series on Netflix. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, there's so much overexposed, uh, ways of watching stuff now like netflix hulu amazon uh you know regular tv cable tv uh you know that good shows good comics they just get eaten up a lot you know yeah the competition is we're, we're really learning this lesson about capitalism that we never knew before because capitalism we thought would work and it does in small communities where you've got like two people competing there's one real estate agent there's another real estate agent they try to lower their prices to you know engage the most consumers whatever it might be but then when you realize oh i can get on my phone and open up an app and see fifteen thousand real estate companies vying for my money and you go to that one little town and the two real estate guys are like, hey, we live here. Let let one of us help you. And you go, no, no, there's I can get a deal on my phone. I don't need either of you. You start wondering, well, how do I compete in real estate if being in the town and showing you the real estate doesn't even help me? And it's like that with stand up because people just have so many choices that we have friends who release an album or a special on Amazon and the the consumer market goes, mm, is it on Netflix? Because I watch Netflix. And you go, it's going to be the same special no matter where you watch it. And they just go, nah, not my platform. And we're sitting here, all of us are going, well, how the fuck do I compete? How am I supposed to compete 
if I can't get on the one platform? Because you're going to get the same jokes as the consumer either way. And that's my job. I make the jokes. I give you the jokes. But you won't even listen to the jokes if they're coming from this other place. What's going on? Well, I just think you get overwhelmed. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, you go uh, drive down Sunset Boulevard. I, I, Netflix, I think, has bought so many billboards lately. Like they literally have. I would say in the West Hollywood area, maybe sixty percent of the billboards are all Netflix. Yeah, and it's all their series, different and shows, stand-up specials, you know, and everything. Uh, yeah, really, Sebastian's uh, special is the one they seem to be really promoting right now, and. Mm. Uh, you know, I know the Adult Swim billboard, uh, we got bumped back to uh, like Sunset and Fairfax, which I'm not complaining, but, you know, it used to be, <laughs> but it used to have a prime spot. You want uh, better billboard placement, of course. Sunset and Crescent Heights, like, it's like, wow, this is pretty neat to have the cartoon, right? Like, and now it's a little farther down, but. Going back to what you were saying about technology, though, that is really kind of amazing right now. Uh, this latest album of mine, I self-produced it. Uh, Man in the Suit is 100% mine. So anybody who buys it isn't giving money to some record label that they don't know. They're actually, they're investing in me. Now, my second album was self-produced. Uh, it was called uh, How to Be an Audience. You know, it's weird. Uh, without a record label behind me, without all their promotions... I'm still competing at the same level as our comedy peers who have record labels, mostly because the average consumer doesn't really buy comedy albums. But when they find something they like, they will seek it out. Uh, and it's it's kind of amazing right now because you've got all these comics who necessarily they could record an album and they could release it on their own and they could compete for, you know, album sales. And that was never really the case before. Before you needed a label to sign you just so that you had the opportunity to put out an album. Now anybody can do it. And what's weird is uh, so many people aren't. So many people just are choosing not to compete or they're saying, well, I'm going to save this material in case I get a special. Uh, but they could. I mean, I'm waiting myself to... Uh you know, get some level of, I don't know, fame's the right word, but I just, you know, I'm unknown for the most part. Uh, you know, I, you know, I mean, I have a few TV credits now, so it, it might be worth it to explore that option, but I could see comics who aren't necessarily known yet going, who's going to buy this? Nobody knows who I am. Yeah. Could be the greatest standup special since prior on the sunset strip. Yeah. Not likely, but, uh, Could be. Yeah. you know, I, I know a lot of my, uh, funny com comic friends who are Jason Galern is a guy who incredible. I say to myself, this guy should be famous. Yeah. I don't know what famous is, but this guy should be it. Very funny. Very consistent. He yeah. has a, a consistent voice on stage where you go. Yeah, we can, we know who this guy is, but you know, since he's, I guess, moderately unknown, I could see, I don't want to speak for him specifically, but the mindset of well, who's going to buy this? Yeah. Well, and that's always true with everything. You go, who's going to buy this? But I will say that over the years, one thing that has really um, been apparent to me is that the more you have, the more likely people are to buy. So when I talked about album number three being a big milestone for me, when you look at the iTunes comedy charts, when you look at the top 200 
things that are being sold right now. And that chart changes every two hours or so. It sure does. 95% of the comedy albums on there, if you point to any number of things, point to it, you can ask, does this artist have three or more albums for sale? 95% of the time, the answer is going to be yes. And the small amount of time where the answer is no Sometimes the answer is, no, this is Greg Giraldo. He died before he could put out his third right. album. And uh, other times you could just say, well, is this this person's first time on the charts with this record? And for the most part, if you have one album out there and you released it two, two years ago, the chances that you're going to be on the charts are nil. But if you have three albums, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I released that uh, a week ago, over a week ago, and it's been on the charts the whole time. I've never had an album do that. You know why? I never had three albums. Right. And at this point, like I have a fan base who knows the previous work and now they're like, oh yeah, we should go out and purchase this and keep it there. And it's sustained on the charts. And the only thing I can attribute that to is it's the third album. Now, where did you record it? I've recorded all three albums at Acme in Minneapolis. It's a great little club. And one thing that I do that is unsustainable, but I've always had a a moral obligation to do this. I record in front of audiences who do not know we're doing a record because I want genuine responses. So do you tell them up front, like, Hey, you know, like I'll go see kiss tomorrow night in Anaheim. They'll be like, Hey, we're recording this for a live, yeah. you know, which with kiss it's not live, but uh, do you not say that up top? Like, Hey, um, I've done it and it has never worked out well because it, it has made the audience very nervous. And I go, well, we're not using that recording. And we just blew a night that we could be recording. Um, no, we don't tell anybody. And you'll even hear people on this album. They, they are talkative. They're rowdy. They're kind of heckling during the album. And I want listeners to know like, yeah, this is a, this is an actual stand-up show. This isn't a bunch of people who piled in so they could be polite and energetic and cheer me on and be cheerleaders so that I can do well. No, no, this is the job. And the the fact of the matter is the people listening at home, they know when something's genuinely funny because I'm doing it for complete strangers. And I assume that the listener at home is a complete stranger. So I want those genuine responses. And we've known plenty of people over the years where they you know, they fill up a room with their friends, they fill up a room with their families, and they record a comedy album. And while they are quote unquote killing on the album, you let a stranger listen to it, and the stranger goes, Yeah, I didn't like a lot of that stuff. <laughs> right. And you go, Yeah, because you don't know that person and you don't already love them. They're doing well in front of people who love them. And there are even comics who have a huge fan base, people like, uh, you know, um, Kathy Griffin gets up and crushes in front of her fans, but I've never seen her get up in front of a group of strangers, you know, in the past, like two, three years, like at the improv and she's, she's famous. So she gets on stage and she'll, she'll get some recognition, but I would love to see her in front of a group of people who have no idea who she is. And I'd love to see how she handles that. I'd love to see that. Yeah. I mean, it's a different skill set. Well, I've seen that a lot at the comedy store, which is, uh, I guess, um, the atmosphere can be a little more aggressive mm -hmm. in terms of they don't care if you're famous or not. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they'll, which is great for someone like me who's not really uh, famous or whatever. They're like, okay, this guy's funny. Right. Uh, we don't have to hear he's been on 
this show or that show but it also works in the opposite where i've seen a lot of famous comics like they're not in their fan base uh setting so they struggle yeah because it's a darker uh, atmosphere up there of sorts and i think it's funny for us because we know a lot of famous people who live in la but they don't get up at the clubs in la because they don't want to <laughs> they don't want to face that demon of ah oh, maybe i'm not funny when strangers come to see me right but i mean it, it i do admire and this is where podcasts i think come into play that you create your fan base like sure uh you know like I would say most of the people who listen to this, like pro wrestling and hockey and heavy metal. So that's who I want to be in front of. Yeah. And that's why I started this conversation by saying this whole, this whole idea of I record in front of strangers. I said, it's unsustainable for that reason, because ultimately I don't have any control over, you know, if my fans fill up a comedy club and they are chanting my name and want to see me, well, that now that's the position I'm in. I have to go out and make my fans laugh. So I'm going to do that however I can do it. But until that day comes, I have to go out and make strangers laugh. Uh, but I can't, I can't go out in front of a room full of my fans and say, no, no, you treat me like a stranger. Right, right. <laughs> Don't give me any love at all. Well, uh, I mean, I just, you know, like Rogan's got, a, I think, the ultimate. Like he, his fans want what he gives. And he tells them every day on his podcast, this is where I'll be this weekend. They show up. Joey Diaz, the same thing. Uh, like his fans are pretty rabid. Uh, that's what I want. I, I guess that's what every comic wants. That is what every comic wants. And I want to say this about the people that you named, which is they went through a lot of years of not having a fan base. Oh, for sure. So they learned what it was like to figure out what do I say on stage? What is my persona? What is my message? And they grew into themselves. And so now it doesn't matter who's in the audience. They're like, well, here's what I want to say. And uh, we, we, of course, know people who they had never done stand-up. And then they were on SNL. And then they decided, I'm going to do stand-up all over the country. And then they show up to their first gig. And they go, wait, how much time am I doing? What am I supposed to do up there? And the club owner goes, you're supposed to do 45 minutes. And they go, 45 minutes? Oh, my God. How am I going to fill that time? And the club owner's like, are you fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> and they go up and it's a room full of their fans. And yet they don't know what they're going to say. They have no idea what their persona is on stage. They have nothing to give. And then they've got a room full of people who are just salivating for them because they're such big fans and then nothing happens. <laughs> uh so, you know, it's it's like we talked about earlier, the people who have suffered and learned along the way, by the time the fandom comes, they are more than ready for it. Yeah. If, if the fandom doesn't come, they go, well, yeah, I'm going to get on stage and do what I want anyway. So we're good. We're good. But well, you do want your people there. Oh, I mean, I'm at the point 20 years in where I, I don't want to battle a crowd. Like, No, I'm very tired of battling a crowd. You know, I mean, five... 10 years ago i'll do this i'll do a black room where i'm not really uh it's not my target demo or yeah. they're not going to get my references now I, someone asked me to do uh, the j spot the other night which is uh pretty much a black club and uh in la i'm like no i'm good i'm all right i don't want to battle yeah you know and it's nothing against the club uh i just uh, i want you know like what hinchcliffe did you know he he 
targeted uh, a group of uh, the population that likes roasting and ball busting style. He honed in on it, and it's working for him. Like, yeah, he's playing all over the country. Uh, sure. So, I mean, how do you target? Like, I know who thinks I'm funny. Mm-hmm. How do you go? Who thinks Ryan Stout is funny? Uh, I honestly have no clue. I have no clue who <laughs> likes me. I have no clue um, why they come out. Uh, it, it seems like the people who really enjoy me are the people who want an evening of something that's a little more thoughtful. Because I'll get on stage and talk about Aristotle. I'll talk about Maya Angelou. I'll talk about philosophical concepts on stage. And yet it isn't it isn't talking down to them in any way. It's just giving them a little hint. Hey, I'm going to give you this little tiny hint about Maya Angelou. We're going to use that as a springboard into this thing that I'm thinking about. And I think people who are um, kind of craving something a little deeper right now, craving something that's not as surface level as a lot of the entertainment that Hollywood puts out, they want something that uh, they can kind of mentally chew on for a little while longer. I think those people are gravitating toward me. Um, I get a lot of academics, a lot of college professors, a lot of lawyers after shows that want to talk to me. Um, I had a guy in Cincinnati who, um, his name is Peter Block. If we're going to give Peter Block a plug. Yes, Peter Block. He's written, he's written books about like community building and his whole philosophy is no fences which I think is kind of topical right now with our president trying to build a wall. (laughs) But uh, he's had this no fences concept for years because as soon as you build a fence, you no longer know your neighbor. You know, there's no fence there. You just see each other and there's no, nothing impeding you guys from talking. Um, But Peter Block was at a show in Cincinnati and approached me afterward and shook my hand, wanted to talk about like some of the choices that I'm making on stage and, you know, some of the subject matter that I'm choosing. Like he had very deep introspective questions about kind of like, how do you do that? And it's not the same as the audience member who's like, hey, buddy, that was really funny. Let's go do shots. Right. And the the people that want to do shots, I hope they have a good time at the show, but I'm not going to be doing shots afterward. Right. It's fun for me when people come out to the shows and I can tell who's a fan of mine because they dressed up. (laughs) Sometimes there'll be men in suits and ties. There'll be women in like evening gowns and they look around and they go, really? Other people are wearing t-shirts to the evening of comedy. Okay. Because I could see men and women liking you. Like you're a good looking dude. I mean, listen, that helps. That helps. Yeah, yeah. Uh I mean, you're you're a taken man, but I mean, uh you know, when I used to date the manager from Motorhead, she said, "We want girls at the show because we know guys will go where the girls are." I mean, yeah. it was a really a brilliant marketing. She said, "Chicks equals clicks." Yeah. And uh you know, so it, it's I could see guys liking you though. Sure. Well, sure. it's 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 an interesting place we're in right now where there are so many people trying to argue that uh, comedy is a male-dominated business. And the fact of the matter is every single comedian who has been successful in stand-up comedy has had an enormous female fan base. Whether it's Joe Rogan or Daniel Tosh or Andrew Dice Clay D'Elia. or Sam Kinison, girls everywhere. And the reason is because if you can convince women to come out to the show, 
they tend to a bring their significant other and they also tend to do this other thing. They reach out to their girlfriends and they say, hey, let's all go. So instead of telling selling one ticket to one dude who's some comedy fan who lives in his mom's basement, you're selling 10 tickets. So you always want a female fan base and every single famous comic has had a huge female fan base. So it's so disingenuous to say that stand-up comedy is male-dominated when the consumer market that controls popularity is all women. It's all women. They have more consumer power than men do in our business. Oh, sure. And especially now, you know, with, uh, you know, the number of, well, since 2001, if you wanted to be on Comedy Central, you had to impress the women who were at Comedy Central because all of the talent uh, people were women. All of them were. So that was always the first step. And if you couldn't impress women, you were kind of dead in the water. Well, I tried with Comedy Central. I'm not sure where I went awry. <laughs> they weren't impressed, Earl? You know, I, uh, I don't think they liked my uh, outspokenness. Maybe, maybe not. You know, when you don't have a manager or a agent or any kind of a representation, you uh, have to stick up for yourself. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's not the best course of action. Look, I've known a lot of people who have reached out to networks on their own behalf and said, hey, what what's going on with this? And then they've gotten an email from their own representatives, their own manager going, could you please never reach out to the networks ever again? Let us do it. Let us be the bad guy. Right. I mean, that's exactly what Barry Katz said on this couch. And Barry's a uh, controversial uh, figure in the world of... Uh, For sure. Uh, you know, I had several, uh, what you'd call A-level uh, comics, uh, asked me to not release the podcast uh -huh. with him because uh, he... Maybe uh, some wacky business transactions with them. But uh, I found it fascinating to have someone of his, you know, caliber in the business. Uh, he's like, dude, you just want someone to be the bad guy for you. Mm -hmm. And, it, and you know, you'll go a lot farther with someone else making the phone calls for you. Yeah. Uh, unless you're at such a level where, you know they respect you that much where okay chris delia just call me maybe i should yeah when know. they're falling all over themselves to appease you right yeah 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 uh, so did you have any help i know you self-produced this but like uh, do your representatives like say hey maybe you should do this you should do that do they give you any kind of feedback on how to market it uh they did not <laughs> <laughs> this is a short answer simple, simple short answer uh there's no again it's i think an area where there's no money in it for them. They're they're not they're not going to be able to receive a two hundred thousand dollar check for album sales. So they're just like, oh, you're releasing an album, great. Let us know how it goes. But in my mind, wouldn't it like? I mean, I'm not saying you're going to make millions on this album, but like if they helped you a little bit, like maybe get on an Ellen or or whatever, like you would make a. Sure. They would get a nice ten uh, percent or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I I was talking with a publicist, and it sounds like publicists do a much better job representing comedians than some of the other people in our business because these publicists, instead of waiting for the phone to ring, are very active reaching out to people. Now, publicists, of course, charge twenty five hundred dollars a month for a minimum of 
three to five months and they want to know well in advance before the project is released and they want essentially they get paid even when people reject them which agents would love that deal agents would love to be able to say oh i'm getting paid 2500 a month even though my client doesn't have any work and so agents of course they wait for the phone to ring a little bit some more than others some a lot less there are certain agents that i've met who are absolutely hustlers but uh, it sounded like when I spoke with this publicist, she was like, oh, we need to lay down a game plan of which late night shows to talk to and which publications to talk to and this and that. And, and she really was amped about doing it. And then she was ungodly expensive. And I was like, oh, that's that's help in Hollywood. <laughs> well, it's funny. You mentioned $2,500 a month there. That's the one publicist I spoke with. That's exactly what they charged. Yeah. Uh, but it was... Uh, it's kind of a catch-22 where they could get you on all these shows, but you're not going to get really that money back anytime soon. Like, mm. it's like, do I want the publicity or do, you know, it's like you're paying for something that you might not see a, a profit on. Like, yeah, I can get you on, uh, I don't know, Carson Daly. Yeah. Uh, you can talk about your podcast or your, your special, but uh, that might not translate directly into sales for you. There are a lot of people trying to sell the dream. You know, ever since, ever since what's his name wrote the four hour work week, which was a very popular book. And he's like, you know, you got to come up with something that people want to buy. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, you did. I'm holding it right now. <laughs> you, you sold me on this dream that I would work for four hours a week and, uh, you know, live in some exotic location and uh, make a ton of money from people who are working for me. And it's a nice dream that you've written in this book, but it seems like this book provided you your dream. Uh, right. it's, it's, I think publicists are doing the same thing. I think there are a lot of online content providers that do that with comedians. They go, hey, let us have your material. Let us film you, and then you'll get exposure and there are a lot of comics who sign away their rights to their own videos for exposure. And it's just, they're buying into the dream. And maybe it works out, but chances are it doesn't. Well, yeah, I get uh, that uh, almost an email or two a day on on people wanting to promote the podcast for me. Uh, it's like, uh, well, we have this website where we uh, expose you to, it's like, well, listen, I get that. You know, you always want, tomorrow one more fan than you had today uh-huh. but uh where what where's either the money or uh, not that i'm in this for the money but like what are you promising me like why should i go with you guys oh, well the exposure that's the it's like well but what does that do for, that helps you provide yeah. content right that you don't have to pay for right because then you run off and tell advertisers look how much content we have right look at look at the statistics for how many hours people are on our website give us more money for advertising. And then they pass none of the money on. It's this whole concept of an aggregator that is sweeping around right now with people like fuck Jerry. And uh, what is that about? Cause I don't. Uh, and before you answer, this is where we cut the Facebook live okay. feed off. If you, first of all, first of all, I don't plug many people. That's true. 20 years into comedy. I'm bitter and jaded. I'm only about 18 years in everybody. I, I'm like, Rambo in the hardware store. I'm about to give up. I, I need Colonel Troutman to come in and save me. Uh, Ryan Stout, man in the suit. And if you're on Facebook, just type Ryan Stout into the browser and you'll find me. Twitter and Instagram, are you at 
Twitter, I'm at Stout Ryan. Instagram, I'm at Stout Cider. We're going to get into Fuck Jerry right now, but you're going to have to listen on Apple Podcasts. I've been incorrectly calling it iTunes the last couple weeks. I guess there was a shift ah. over at Mr. Jobs Corporation. So uh, inappropriate old Apple Podcasts. Become fans of Ryan Stout. Let's get into Fuck Jerry. Am I? I haven't really followed this. He's someone who took comics materials and used them in memes. Um, basically, just grabbed screenshots of whatever they could from anywhere on the internet and uh, posted it on their uh, Instagram page. And so, people that were a fan of Fuck Jerry, they could go and they could look at all sorts of funny stuff all the time. And it was just so easy for them. It was so easy for people to just look and laugh and scroll and laugh and look and laugh and scroll and laugh. But fuck Jerry was selling advertising. So they're getting 10 grand a pop, 50 grand a pop, 70 grand a pop. And yet they're doing it using other people's intellectual property. And the debate is, well, why is it that the people who are actually making you laugh don't get anything. Right. But this person who isn't making you laugh, this person is getting paid a lot of money for just saying, hey, look over there at that funny thing. And and it just doesn't make any sense at all because they're not creating anything. And so the people who put time and effort into creating funny things are saying, oh, you need to boycott that that feed because... They're only hurting the people that create the funny things you like. So was it kind of like a couple of years ago? Uh, now, this was the guy's name. This, these are not my words. The fat Jew. Yeah, exactly the same. Yeah. Who had deals with CAA, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, he had a show and development at Comedy Central. 100%. Yeah. We've, we've gone through these. We've jumped through these hoops before. And I I can only imagine that there's some place in American culture that consumers of comedy have no knowledge of how hard it is to create comedy. It's tough. Well, they have no idea how tough. So they just go, I don't care. I just want the funny. And because they just want the funny, they're totally willing to give their attention to whoever provides it, even if that person isn't creating it. And they think that's just fine. Well, I think that's with uh, all these goddamn talent shows on the air that show stand-up in two-minute chunks, if that. Mm -hmm. So I think the the viewing public is conditioned to go, oh, I want to see comedy in two-minute chunks. Yeah. I don't want to see a half hour or right. an hour or, you know, and then it gives people the idea, whether it be the Jeremy Pivens, and I'm not trying to pick on him. Sure. But, you know, I'm sure he saw America's Got Talent or that new show, uh, The World's Best. Oh, I, you just need a few minutes of material. Yeah. It's like, no. I've started asking people, like, what did you imagine, like, before you'd ever touched a mic, what did you imagine your first time on stage would be like? I mean, I remember at the comedy store, I, I went to the Hustler store right down the street and, uh, I bought a dildo. Okay. And the first joke I ever did was, uh, I said, you know, people think I'm a big dick, and I pulled out the dildo. Okay. And I might have gotten the most genuine laugh I've ever gotten in my life. Uh-huh. Uh, and then it's been a struggle ever since. 
<laughs> I don't think I thought about what it I think I just wanted to do it so badly because uh, most of my friends were agents and managers. Uh, they're like, just get into it, dude. You're funnier than any of our clients. I was like, oh, that's good enough for me. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> and then uh, 20 years later, I'm like, oh, oh. Uh, But I'm in it for the art. Like, I think you do comedy, as you know, you know, longer than three months, you're in it for the right reasons. Because if you're in it for the money, you'll, you're, you're, you'll quit. Oh, you, and you're going to be really, really heartbroken really quickly when you figure out that a production assistant in Hollywood working for five days a week, Monday through Friday, is going to make more money than you are featuring on the road at a comedy club. Yeah, and even if you can headline, unless you have a name... Uh, You're not going to headline long. Yeah, I mean, and I get that. Yeah. Although I always say the funniest people I know are the, the most unknown people. Like, Yeah, you know, uh, and I always attribute that to what we discussed earlier is they have to get on stage and they have to fight for it. They have to make strangers laugh, and if they don't, they're dead. <laughs> uh, I, I bring up the what you imagine your first time on stage was like because I remember when I was just thinking about doing stand-up I imagined that I was going to have some sort of voice from above say, ladies and gentlemen, Ryan Stout, and I would get some enormous applause in a theater, and I would walk out onto the stage in a theater, and then I would tell my first joke, and it would be uproarious applause and clapping. And it never dawned on me, like, well, who are all these people? Why are they in the theater for you? How the hell, who booked you to perform in a theater? Like all of the, all of the technical aspects of that dream were uh, lost on me because I was just imagining what comedy would be like. And I think there are a lot of people out there that when they imagine themselves doing stand-up comedy, they have that image in their head. They imagine a Netflix type audience. I do. Yeah. Yeah. But if, if they've never done it before, if they've never stood on stage and held the microphone and looked around the room and realized... Oh, there are 17 people here and they all have their arms crossed and they're all waiting for me to talk. And I don't know any of them. Oh, this is very difficult. What the hell am I going to say? See, that's uh, how I want to do my special in front of 17 people with their arms crossed. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be different nowadays. Like if you look at every stand-up special, it's in a pack theater or a pack club they all look the same to me. Mm. I mean, the jokes are different, I guess, but like I've yet to stop on a special and go, this looks different, mm -hmm. which I think is the next key to get getting something going in this business is you have to be different, but how do you be different? Like, yeah. How do you make standing and talking different? Yeah. I mean, you have to either do it and, uh, you know, like, uh, I had a comedy central exec come up to me after roast battle and, you know, I think it was after I beat Jimmy Carr and he was like, what do you got? You got anything for us? I'm like, uh, yeah, I want to do a stand-up special in front of six drunk people at two in the morning because <laughs> I want their genuine, like, because that's how I've performed so many times. I think, I think that would be funny. And he just looks at me, yeah, our fans aren't that smart. Yeah, that's another problem which is you've got these executives who have in their imagination, they're picturing who's sitting at home watching their network and they're not willing to give that home audience the benefit of the doubt at all. And they just assume now nah, our audience smokes a lot of pot and they're stupid. Well, yeah, but that's what I think who would watch that. Like, 
someone's stoned or whatever they turn on netflix or comedy central they see someone in front of six people like they're all spaced out differently you know this i'm gonna watch this yeah well wait, what is this happening yeah it's not yeah. a packed theater and you know like sebastian's last special i think was in chicago at some massive uh amphitheater right and, uh, right. it was great yeah but i would love to have seen it like <laughs> I don't know at the comedy store two in the morning in the OR, which can be a dreadful room at times because it's, you know, it's all black. It's, it's low uh, energy when there's not a lot of people there, but you know, I would like to see someone, if not me do, do a special in that weirdness. Yeah. Like Maria Bamford did it. in I think her living room in front of her parents. Correct. Yeah. She did the, that living room special and you know, people still talk about it. I don't yeah. know how well it did for her financially, but Sure. I, I think a lot of people are looking for that um, that that idea of how do we change stand up? We're so tired of people standing and talking. Right. <laughs> and they're like, how do we make it special? And I think the way to make it special is to unfortunately teach the home audience what makes standing and talking special, which un until you educate the home audience about why is this special of that person standing and talking in the theater different from that special, right. that person until they can really recognize the differences between the material and go, okay, I see. I see why those are different until they can do that they're going to be looking for producers are going to be looking for some surface level thing to change, you know, and, and they've been fooled over the years. They go, Oh, but this guy has puppets. Ah, that guy uses props. Oh, this person does music. Oh, that changes it up. And you go, you're not, you're not changing anything. <laughs> right. It's still, it's still comedy. And, uh, the people who stand and talk go, no, 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 that's just a gimmick. That guy juggling is just a gimmick for the jokes to work. It's not really different. Well, like Larry the Cable Guy is a character. Yeah, yeah. You know, and... Uh, and and Dice was a character. And <laughs> and I love how people are like, oh, this character comedy is 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 a new thing. And you go, it's not new. Character comedy's been around forever. And it just comes in different waves and the audience forgets about it and then it comes back again and the audience forgets about it. And it's it's a lot of audience ignorance. And we just have to be lucky enough that the audience understands what we're doing during the time period that we're doing it. Right. Well, I mean, it's just, there's so much content out there. Like, uh, you know, like five years ago, I used to, I got to get on TV as a comic late night TV. It's going to not make me famous, but whatever. But now I, I've had friends who've got on, on, uh, you know, Conan or whatever. And, and it doesn't make it, I mean, it, it doesn't hurt you, but it doesn't exactly mean what it used to be. It doesn't change anything. Yeah. Yeah. You don't wake up the next day at some sort of new level. And that's unfortunate because it's hard to climb a ladder that doesn't have any rungs to it. Right. <laughs> and everybody expects us to go from the bottom to the top and there's no middle area anymore. Because if you're working at the clubs, you're usually uh if you're not selling tickets and you're working at the clubs you're living in poverty and if you're working at the clubs and you're selling tickets you're very very wealthy because yeah. you can make 20 grand a weekend easy meanwhile if you're just headlining the clubs and you're not popular you're making between you know 1.5 to two thousand dollars a weekend and you're not even working every weekend 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, you look like the impractical jokers. Those guys are killing it. Killing it. Uh, they have a popular show. Uh, you know, I don't know how they, they are individually as uh, stand-ups, but who the hell cares? Right. If I'm a club owner, I would book those guys in two seconds. Two seconds. Versus uh, someone who's a great joke writer who doesn't have much of a following. Yeah. Because that seems to be the number one. Any meeting I take, the very few I take, the first question is uh, n- nothing about my stand-up. Uh, it's how many followers do you have on Instagram? Yeah. Which is such a strange question, too, because I had just so many MySpace followers because that's during the time that I was on MTV. And when MySpace went away, so did my entire fan base. And we saw that happen with Vine. There were people who were just crushing it on Vine. Vine went away. Their fan base is gone. And if anybody thinks that Instagram is going to stick around... It's like they they haven't been paying attention. There were people who were huge on Snapchat a couple of years ago, and it's gone now. People are not using that platform at all. And this idea that you're taking meetings in Hollywood and they want to know, hey, are people rabid for you on the current popular thing? Because if they are, let's take six months to develop a TV show and run the risk of in that time period... Instagram is no longer popular. And then what happens? Our TV show we've put money and time into can't be a hit the way we planned it. It's like they have no foresight. They don't want actual good content. They just want things to be popular. Well, that's the crazy thing about uh, technology-based platforms like Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Uh, There's some kid in his basement right now in Ohio with zits who's a good programmer who's working on the next Instagram. Yeah. Uh, you know, Spotify is, is killing serious radio. Like kiss just got a channel on serious radio. And wow, that was a big deal a couple of years ago. You know, I think Tom Petty has a channel and uh, Billy Joel, but it's like, well, Spotify does that. Mm-hmm. So it's not really meaning much on serious anymore to have your own music channel. Because you can just go to Spotify. Every band has their own. Every yeah. comic has their own. Yeah. So it's like, and I'm sure something's being developed right now that's going to make Spotify uh, semi-obsolete. Sure. I don't know what, but uh, you know, it's, you're know, you right. Instagram, there's something out there right now that will take down Instagram probably within the next three years. Easy. And I really find it fascinating right now, even the people who have the biggest specials on Netflix... And then you go and you type that name into Spotify, and sometimes they have fewer than a thousand listens right. per track. And you go, wow, you're only famous on one platform. That doesn't seem like fame to me. You know, it, it seems like if you're famous, you would have fans all over the place. But the the fan base is very focused now. Somebody who's famous on Instagram has very few Twitter followers. Yeah. There are people who were so famous on YouTube that they were given television shows and television learned, oh, fans of YouTube things don't turn on the television. They don't follow you to a new platform. So you just have to make your money on whatever platform you get famous on. Yeah, and hope it lasts. You know, like I know Instagram models. I had one on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, Noelle Leone, she gets paid, uh, you know, random amounts to just say oh i'm gonna order grubhub after and grubhub will cut her a check oh my you God. know uh 
or you know you get these random like the guy in the fire festival documentary uh who said he was on his way to the uh um customs office to blow the guy to release the uh all the evian uh water that was being held up in customs that guy has a tv show now no oh, good yeah and he's blowing people for different products <laughs> good for him I mean, you get it wherever you can get it, I think is. I don't know if I want to make it that bad. (laughs) But I mean, that just goes to show you the craziness of this guy was unknown. He does an interview about the fire festival on Netflix about that story. And now he's got a show in development at Netflix. Ah, nuts. I mean, he's on Netflix before I am. Crazy. Well, I don't know, Ryan. I'm I'm about to (laughs) go in the hardware store. It's over, Johnny. It's all over. Well, it's over if you're in it for the right reasons. I think now it's like, okay, what do I do or say that's so crazy that, you know, someone will give me something for it? Well, I think that's why people go crazy in this business. I think that's why we know people who are hard to, to just have a discussion with because they're literally waking up every day to a changing world and going, well, what do I do today to get attention? How do right. I, how do I appease people today? And they never answered the question of like, well, who the fuck are you? (laughs) And maybe you, if you know yourself, you look around at the current state of the world and you go, yeah, there's nothing in it for me right now. I'm going to have to just do my own thing and wait. And that's what I've been doing for a lot of years. I go, you know what? I'm going to put out an album and then I'm going to start working on the new one. And then I'm going to put out an album and I'm going to start working on the new one. And I think, especially in Hollywood, there are a lot of people who look at me and they go, I don't know about that guy because it doesn't seem like he's around. I don't know who his friends are necessarily. I don't know which click he fits into. Meanwhile, I go and I do alternative rooms and I have friends there. I can easily hang out at the comedy store and there are people on that patio that I adore and have been friends with for a long time. And I can go to all these different pockets. I can go down to the Comedy Magic Club where a lot of comics are like, yeah, I don't go down there. It's a little too too rich white person for me and I can fit in down there. And the fact of the matter is it's just because people, the people who I do get along with know, Oh, Ryan is just hammering away at his thing and he's not trying to appease a ton of people. He's not saying, Oh, how can I make the world? (laughs) How can I impress the world today? It's never a look at me, look at me, look at me. It's always like a, please don't look at me. I'm working on this. It's ready. I'll show it to you. (laughs) Yeah, but someone like you, like Brody Stevens is another one. Like, you guys could play anywhere. Like, yeah, there are yeah, some yeah. comics who can't do the comedy store because it's just, you know, it's just not their energy. Yeah. Uh, or the improv, where it's you know, a little on the corporate side, but like, there's nothing wrong with that. Or Hermosa's, uh, I love playing there just because it's, yeah, it's an older, richer, whiter crowd, but. They treat you so nice. It's like, I want to blend in here. Yeah, I'd love uh, to. I'd love to have an old rich crowd that hands me money afterward. <laughs> but there are some like dirtier comics who can't play there because it's just like that sense of humor is not going to go over. Yeah. And there's cleaner comics. Like, you know, you think Brian Regan could play anywhere. Yeah. But you don't see him at the comedy store because, no. I mean, I don't know why, but like I'll assume it's like, this is not my energy. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, it's a ever evolving business and you better be on the right side of it. I always thought that, uh, Roseanne was a good example of somebody who didn't really know themselves and got a lot of attention and then didn't know why the attention went away. Uh, you know, she had been doing comedy for about four years when she did Carson and she's an overnight success. Now we all know that four years of doing stand up does not, <laughs> that's not enough experience for you to really 
know how to do stand-up. Oh, yeah. It just isn't. So she's doing comedy four years. She becomes an overnight sensation because of Johnny Carson. And then six years in, she's got a hit show on ABC. And then she's got that hit show for nine years. And then what happens? It ends and she basically goes into obscurity. And she spends that time wondering, well, I'm, I'm the best in the world. Why, why don't people pay attention to me? They should be paying attention to me. And then you start getting these rants about marijuana and about running for president. And you just start getting all of this like stuff where people go, I think Roseanne's out of her fucking mind. And then what happens? Magically, the sky opens up and the heavenly lights shine down upon her. And they say, guess what we're going to do for you? We're going to bring back Roseanne. <laughs> the one thing that was a huge success for you, we're going to bring it back. And she's like, I knew it. I knew I was just so great that somebody would help me again. And they bring it back. But you know what? By now, she's already crazy still. And she's ranting on Twitter. And she's saying all these things. And she has no idea like who she is or what she provides the world. And she just comes across as an insane person. And then when they take her show away, she's screaming into a camera. I didn't know that bitch was white. And you go, oh my God, Roseanne, Jesus Christ. If you would have ever, <laughs> if you would have ever just learned your craft and had some humility and just said, this is who I am. This is what I do. Let's just keep doing things for the sake of doing things. You wouldn't be insane right now. Yeah, she needed a publicist. Oh, yeah. She needs somebody to be the bad guy for her. Well, well I mean, I, I, you know, in her case, it's just like, you just can't, like, I'm, I'm all for edgy jokes, but, like, can't say people look like apes. Oh, no, I was just kidding. <laughs> right, right. I didn't know she was black. It's like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, I think America can be pretty forgiving. American can be very forgiving, especially to celebrities. Um, you, they want to tear you down, but they also want the apology tour and they want to give you a second chance and they want to see people challenged and changed. But, you know, when uh, I think that's what happens to a lot of Disney kids, too. There's well-documented history of Disney kids. You know, once once they get out of Disney, they start doing a lot of drugs. They don't know their personal value in the world. They start wondering, like, why don't I have attention anymore? And then they start flying off the handle, doing crazy shit, lighting their hair on fire and, you know, attacking things. And uh, then the news picks it up and goes, oh, another crazy Disney kid. And I go, yeah, when they were a child, they thought they were working for an imaginary rat king. And then when reality hit, <laughs> it's like they didn't have any personal value. Well, yeah, they just uh, you see that a lot with child actors like you know the one uh, i'm dating myself here but the original bad news bears and the in the first one the catcher the fat kid was hilarious but in between sequels he uh grew four inches and he lost weight so it wasn't funny anymore it's the fat kid <laughs> and they replaced him instantly uh -huh. now he sure. didn't like kill himself or but you know, Bad News Bears, pretty successful movie. I'm sure that kid thought I'm going to be rich and famous, mm -hmm. and then just because he grew, sorry, see you, kid. You're done. We got another fat guy, <laughs> you know. So, well, it's really kind of fascinating too. Talking to uh, a friend of mine, his sister is a child agent, and uh, she she said, you know, it's really sad for a lot of these. 12 year old girls who are who have been actresses for like four years 
and they're very talented and then they're in demand and then they hit puberty and their body changes and their body changes in such a way that everybody goes, no, 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 we don't have any use for her because um, she, we, we would prefer somebody who is just 18 who looks younger at right. this point because then we don't have to abide by child labor laws. If you're a 14-year-old girl and you have a certain body type, but there's an 18-year-old girl who has your same body type, the 18-year-old girl gets the job because they don't have to look out for child labor laws. It's a very simple solution for them, but that leaves a dearth of talent of all these young girls who were actresses who are now hitting puberty who don't have any work, and they're like, what is going on in the world? Yeah, well, I, I think that, the, and I hope he survives but you can tell that guy who's on young sheldon mm. the uh he's already growing pretty like he's aging like he's only like nine or something but like <laughs> yeah. you know I, i'll be curious to see how much longer the show goes because he's definitely had a growth spurt yeah. so he doesn't look as young and sure. you know that's the whole premise of the show is young sheldon young sheldon so young uh, sheldon can't be 35 everybody <laughs> yeah well it's like uh, i think the last time they tried to stretch it out like that was porky's you know, <laughs> where, you know, the first Porky, say, they even looked a little old back then for high school, but then Porky's three, I think every actor was in their early 30s. Yeah. Uh, and Nobody, so, nobody's buying that these are high school kids. Yeah. And Grease was like, you know, if you look at Grease, uh, you know, with Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, I think she was uh, late 20s. He Travolta was probably mid to late 20s. The stock for Channing was in her 30s. Like, you guys aren't in high school. This isn't working. Mm -hmm. So you guys can't be in the sequel. Yeah, yeah. Because you're still at Rydell High. And, you know, so... Uh, and comics, I think, go through that too, you know, where they look young, maybe their first special, and then they're not so young, but there's a newer comic who looks younger. It's like, all right, you had a nice run. See a sport. You know, since I was 24, I think most of the business thought I was 33 just because of how I carried myself and because I'd be wearing a suit and tie on stage and because of what I would choose to talk about. So it wasn't until I started hitting like 34, 35, I started having meetings with people and they were actually interested in what I had to say. And somebody explained it to me. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're you're 35 now. Yeah. People in this town are going to start to take you more seriously before they thought you were just some asshole kid. <laughs> and I went, oh, that's nice to know. It's nice to know that I wa wasted those 11 years taking meetings where people weren't really listening to me. Well, I just find this business behind the scenes. They're so fucking lazy. They don't want to do any work. No, no. They want you to come. Here's my cartoon. It's fully developed. Sell it. And it's already got an audience. Yeah. It's like, why don't you help me build it with all your connections? And then we'll make money together. Am I wrong in that? I mean, it just seems every agent or manager I've spoken with in the last two years is like, what do you have for me that's already in the can? Yeah. Well, and it's going to be the downfall of the business because it was those people who encouraged the do-it-yourself method, and yet they didn't see they didn't see the problem coming, which is, well, if I do it myself as the creator, now I have the internet, and I'll just be a do-it-myself distributor. What do I need any of you for? You, none of you get a cut now. I'm going to do it myself, just like you told me. And that's what a ton of people have done. And I think that's why the business kind of lost its shit back in 2000. What was it? 2000. 
2012 when Louis released his special for $5 on his own website and made a million dollars in one day, you had people scrambling going, well, how the fuck did he do that? He released his own special. He made a million dollars in one day. Well, where's our cut? How do we do this? And the, the answer is, well, you have to do a lot of hard work. <laughs> and they went, oh, we're not interested. Yeah. I mean, but you've done it with your, uh, your self produce. I self produced the last two albums. I made literally thousands of dollars. You guys thousands between two and $9,000. <laughs> but you know, you did it your way. I did it my way. I didn't cut anybody in and it's an investment. Like hopefully people who like this new album will look back at album number two and, uh, by that, by that, look back, start streaming album number one and give me some clicks there. All these metrics all over the place are so interesting because you look at a guy like me and people go, I've never heard of that guy. And I say, yeah, but I have a million streams on Spotify. That's pretty good, right? I have a half million views on YouTube. That's not too bad. For a guy who nobody knows. Uh, and I just want all these numbers to keep building so that when somebody goes, I don't even know you. I go, really? Because I've got all these numbers that say I've been around for a long time and I've done a lot of work. Yeah, well, you're figuring out the business better than I am. Cause, <laughs> I mean, I don't have a podcast yet, though. So what, what, all, all your listeners, I'll have to join the party. <laughs> I mean, having a podcast today is like, you know, saying you have hair on your head. Like, yeah, it's it doesn't mean what it used to, uh, but it is a great way to build up a fan base and, uh, you know, plug uh, whatever you got in the pipeline or your friends. You know, I mean, I love doing it. I don't make any money doing this podcast. Sure. Well, uh, you don't advertise. Well, I had some problems on Apple Podcasts. Someone re reported me for a music violation, so they took me off the charts. Oh, I see. And then they're not very helpful in terms of, uh, you know, I have I only use one song on this podcast and uh -huh. I have permission. Uh, and you do have permission, you say? Yeah, it's, I, it's my friend's band from the 80s. Yeah. You know, and uh, they're not very... Uh, helpful and they're not responding well I, you know they said they did an investigation you know because there's all these uh you know i think about four or five months ago there was these all, all of a sudden out of the blue on the top 20 on uh itunes overall not just comedy but there was all these real estate podcasts that came out of nowhere huh into the top 20 okay like they were getting rogan like numbers it's like well they have five subscribers how is this yeah uh what's going on here uh so i guess there's ways that you can pay for a very small amount people in bangladesh to essentially hack into itunes and just put your podcast up there so uh yeah. you know it, it's but in my case they said we did an investigation uh you didn't do anything wrong but we can't put you back on the charts i mean why not because i i think at one point i was number eight in comedy sure uh, which got me meetings. I mean, I, I would get meetings off of that. Of course, and, yeah. Uh, you know, it, they're just not very, uh, it's been a pain in the ass. Uh huh. They, they said, well, we did an investigation. We know you didn't do anything wrong, but we can't guarantee chart position. Like, I understand that. Like you said, charts and change. You're like, look, I'll, I'll earn my chart position, yeah. but let me earn it. Uh, I was number eight, and then that Tuesday, I was gone off the charts completely. It, it doesn't make sense that I would drop 200 uh, spots, yeah. spots in, in an hour. And they're like, yeah, well, we just we don't guarantee chart uh, 
that's a, that's their answer that they gave to me. It's like, oh well, this sucks, right? So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't. I mean, I guess I'm doing this for the exposure. <laughs> yeah, I, I think anybody who's a fan of this podcast would go see you live if you were in their yeah. area. Yeah, and hopefully see you and buy your albums. And you know, I try and have people on. Uh, the one thing I do like about this podcast is I I don't have to deal with anyone I don't like. Yeah, you don't have to let them into your home. You don't have to <laughs> answer their phone calls. But that's the great thing about doing something like this is, you know, you, you have to deal with club owners, I'm sure, every now and then that, you know, might not be above board, but you, you want to play their club. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of navigate that minefield of dealing with someone you don't like. It, that's the one thing I do love about a podcast is you don't have to deal with anyone you don't like. Yeah. You don't get to talk to the mic. I'm going to be the gatekeeper here. Yeah. But, you know, you still want to make money out of it. You know, you would. You would. And you want to be on the charts. You know, I I think it's, uh, I think Rogan's the ultimate model of, you know, he could cheat and just interview UFC fighters. I'm sure people would dig it. But he has scientists on. He has Mm -hmm. flat earth people on. Like, I really love how he just doesn't have his friends. He is genuinely curious about a lot of things, too. And I think his fan base allows him to invite people on who can. He was like, oh, yeah, I can I can talk to Neil deGrasse Tyson about this thing because I, I want to know about this thing. And he can invite Jordan Peterson or whoever on and say, I want to know about this thing. Tell me about this thing. And I don't think that Joe would be as successful if he weren't as genuinely intellectually as curious as he is yeah because i think it comes through whereas i think we've seen talk show hosts over the years who you know they have a card with questions on it and they just ask whatever questions on the card and the audience knows like you don't give a shit what the answer is you're asking that question because that's the answer that's the question they want you to ask (laughs) that's the question that helps them plug their product okay great thanks for (laughs) wasting my time yeah, I mean, I, you know, which is how I've wanted to do this podcast was I don't play on questions. Right, of course. Uh, you know, I want it to be genuine. Tell us about the album. I literally don't know what I'm going to say to you next. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And most of the time it works. Well, I think it comes across and I think it still ends up very natural so that people at home feel like they're just listening to a genuine conversation rather than, you know, segments. Yeah, I mean, I have your website in front of my face right now, so I could just go, oh, okay, he was, he was in Just for Laughs, he you know, was on Access TV. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't want to be like, hey, so Ryan, tell us what it was like to be on Access TV. <laughs> pass. So, I'm going to go ahead and pass. Next question. Uh, next question is, where can people buy all three of your albums? All three, either on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, uh, whatever, whatever source you use to make your purchases of audio, Go there, do that. And if you're extremely polite, because I've had friends do this, they will purchase it on iTunes, but then they will go to Spotify and they will stream it on Spotify just for my benefit. And does it help if they, uh, because I know in the podcast world, what really helps is subscribing, leaving a review, uh, reviews on iTunes you would like. I would absolutely like. I think there are like eight reviews on there now. I think 11 people clicked five stars. So I would I would like them to do that. I'd like them to participate just because uh, I know it helps. But I also hope that they'll be genuine. I hope they'll actually listen to the album and then rate it. Right, right. I mean, I, I leave all, 
all my reviews up on this podcast negative mm-hmm. like my favorite one is actually this guy's i used to love his podcast he interviewed 80s rock stars now it's just comics i don't know unsubscribed <laughs> actually i don't think there's a way i could take it down anyway but and what's weird is uh it seems like mark maron's almost doing the opposite it used to just be comics you didn't know <laughs> and now it's all sorts of uh Oh yeah, I mean, I would love to go on that podcast. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, but I don't. I think I'm too unknown. Like, yeah, I I did like how he would have like I know he had Dean Del Rey on. Uh, I was like, oh, that's cool that yeah. someone to you know have a not that Dean was he he was semi unknown at the time. Of course. And, oh, this is cool to be to give Dean this platform, and I yeah. know Rogan's done a lot. Uh, of course, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's really. The new Tonight Show, I think, like absolutely uh, change your career going on Rogan. I mean, he's helped Hinchcliffe, Tom Segura, uh, Ari Shafir, uh, mm-hmm. Duncan, Joey Diaz. I mean, you know, so I'd like to think of myself as the less popular Rogan. I'll take it because I can get on this one. Yeah, this is easy. <laughs> People ask me how you get on this podcast. You just have to have a working GPS to my house and uh, an hour or so to. Uh, Come on down. And Earl has to approve of you. Otherwise, don't even try. I mean, I, I think I've had out of 280 guests or whatever it is, maybe one or two people I didn't necessarily like, but I thought it might be a good interview. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to make you it You make run. exceptions. You have to. You yeah. got to, you you'll, you'll bend. It's a good way to go through life. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to get, it's all about the, lo- the, the views. Yeah, well, sure. If Hollywood's teaching us anything right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, the got the fire festival guy's gonna have his own show on Netflix, blowing people for Evian. Well, that's the title of the show. It used to be "Who do I have to blow to get on TV?" and now it's "Who do I have to blow on TV?" Welcome to Hollywood, kids. Ryan Stout, where can people find you? Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Twitter at Stout Ryan and Instagram at Stout Cider, S-I-D-E-R, Stout Cider, like outsider, but with an S-T in front of it. And then on Facebook, forward slash Ryan Stout. And then uh, RyanStout.com? Sure, you can go there. It's kind of a mess right now, but go take a look. Take a look. Buy Ryan's uh, new album. Buy all three. Buy all three. It's nine. What is it on iTunes? Nine bucks or something? Yeah. I mean, it's nine bucks. You'll have it forever. You'll pay $17 to go see a horrible movie, parking, five. You'll be out 50, 60 bucks to take a girl out, nine bucks for a quality. There's no one who works harder than Ryan in this business to put out quality content. I don't get a cut of this. I'm begging you, please buy his album, review it on iTunes, buy it on Amazon, wherever you make your purchases, stream it on Spotify, Inappropriate Earl, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcast leave a review or just subscribe it literally takes two seconds to click a fucking button you ungrateful bastards